Well, in Jeremiah chapter 19, God speaks through a cracked pot. And you say, that's no big deal, Pastor Sandy. God speaks through a cracked pot every Sunday morning here at this church. Well, in tonight's text, God literally speaks through a cracked pot. He uses a broken jar to speak to the nation Judah. You know, when it comes to learning, when it comes to memory, studies show that you recall about 10% of what you hear, but 50% of what you see. This is why God often employs visual aids. He would call on His prophets to dramatize the divine messages that He had for His people. You remember Isaiah, he walked naked and barefoot among the people to proclaim the bare facts of God's judgment. Ezekiel laid on his side. Hosea was told to marry a prostitute. In Jeremiah 13, we've already seen it here in this prophecy, the prophet Jeremiah buried a sash, a priestly undergarment, by the the Euphrates River. The undergarment was intimate apparel. It it covered the priest's intimate parts. He hid it by the river. But when Jeremiah went to retrieve it, he found that it had rotted. It had mildewed. And it was a visual aid. It was a lesson to the people that this is what had happened to their intimacy with God. That their relationship with God had decayed and grown old. Well, now here in chapter 19, we find another one of these prophetic visuals. Chapter 19, verse 1, thus says the Lord, go and get a potter's earthen flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. The word get actually means buy. Jeremiah was to purchase a jar that he would break. And the reason is that God had purchased or redeemed Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And thus the jar represented the nation that God had purchased but would now break and humble. This jar that he purchased was probably 4 inches to 10 inches in diameter. It had a narrow neck at the top. It was used to pour water. The point to keep in mind is that hot clay can be shaped. It can be molded. It can even be reshaped. But once the pottery hardens and breaks, it becomes impossible to repair. It ends up discarded. It becomes scrap. Now, both chapters 18 and 19 revolve around this idea of the potter and his pottery. Chapter 18, remember, was a personal message from God to Jeremiah. Whereas chapter 19 is God's public proclamation to the nation. God's intervention in the nation Israel's history, His intention was to mold Israel into valuable vessels, beautiful bottles, pure pottery. If only they had been soft and supple and pliant. Instead, the people were hard-hearted. They were headstrong. And as a result, God has to break them of their self-sufficiency and break them of their pride. He has decided to bring judgment. Well, Jeremiah was to take this clay flask and to take with him the leaders of the people and the priests. I mean, this was the head honchos in Israel. This was like a joint session of Congress. The leading politicos of the land. 
Jeremiah, along with his flask, he goes out with these dignitaries. And then in verse 2, we're told where he goes. And go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you. Now, the potsherd gate was probably located on the southwest wall of the city of Jerusalem, near what is today called the Dung Gate. In the first century, this area had become the city's garbage heap. A constant fire burned in the valley of Hinnom to incinerate the trash. This was why Jesus called the place of eternal punishment Gehenna, which means valley of Hinnom. For in the spiritual domain, there's a parallel. Gehenna in the spiritual domain, is similar to what it was in Jerusalem. It was the place where the worm didn't die and the fire wasn't quenched. At the time of Jeremiah, the Hinnom Valley was a place synonymous with idolatry. Baal was worshipped there. Children were sacrificed to Molech in this valley. And it's here that Jeremiah leads this group of Jewish dignitaries. It's at the scene of their crimes that he publicly pronounces judgment on them and upon the nation. In fact, many people believe that this was more than just a warning, that this was an announcement, a divine announcement that activated God's judgment, that this was the trigger that began the Babylonian invasion and the judgment that God had predicted on his people. Well, God says in verse 3, he tells Jeremiah, and say, hear the word of the Lord. O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. Literally, his ears will vibrate. They'll rattle. The catastrophe that's coming will bring shrill noises, the sounds of trumpet blasts, the sounds of war, in invading armies. He says, Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents, they have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. Idolatry had been established in Israel, first through Solomon, then the succeeding kings. As Solomon multiplied wives, these foreign wives brought with them their foreign gods. And lo and behold, the whole valley of Hinnom was servicing the city of Jerusalem with these idols, chiefly Baal and Molech. And they were burning their children, no less, innocent babies, as offerings to Baal. This was similar to the sacrifice made to Molech, God of the Canaanites, that God had outlawed in Leviticus chapter 18. These idols were made of hollowed out metal. They were made in the image of a bull. Fire burned inside them. The metal became glowing hot. The priests would then beat their drums to drown out the screams of the babies as they laid their babies in the outstretched arms of these idols. This was so foreign to God's thinking. 
that he looked on this practice and he called Jerusalem an alien place. This was never God's intention for his people. In fact, God says of human sacrifice, he says, I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. God never sanctioned human sacrifice. This was the work of foreign gods, pagan gods, these idols. This also shines a light on God's command to Abraham when he told him to offer his only son Isaac on the altar. Apparently, God never intended for Abraham to go through with the sacrifice. He only asked Abraham to offer Isaac, not kill him. And of course, God never asked man to offer a child as a sacrifice or the blood of the innocent. He never asked for this, for man to put a child on the altar, for he was prepared to do so himself. It was God who later offered his only son, Jesus, for the sin of the world. This was a sacrifice he never intended for mankind. In fact, for a human parent to offer their child as a burnt offering was a deed so despicable, so unnatural, that it turned God's world into an alien place. It was not only a crime against God and the child and the parents and society, it was a crime against instinct and nature. And this is how God feels today about abortion. Is abortion not the letting of the blood of the innocents? Modern science has made the mother's womb transparent. Today we can see the life growing in her womb. And who can deny its human life? It's viable from its earliest stages. Left alone in the womb, it'll grow into a healthy baby. What did that baby do to deserve to die? Abortion is barbaric. It's savage. And it's interesting that what blinds parents today to deny their natural instincts and to turn on their own babies is the same motivation that existed in Jeremiah's day. Idolatry fuels abortion. Not Baal worship per se, but self-worship. We worship ourselves and our own personal convenience when we insist on our right to choose over the baby's right to live. And God is still outraged over this kind of shedding of innocent blood. Our nation is just as deserving of judgment for allowing it to continue. Fifty-six and a half million and counting. Verse 6 tells us, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet, which means place of fire. Tophet was one of the mounds there in this valley of Hinnom, on the southwest side of Jerusalem, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but no longer will it be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. The council was the government. And remember his audience now in the valley, the people he's talking to this day, they're the national leaders of the nation. He says, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies And by the hands of those who seek their lives, their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its plagues. Imagine Jeremiah. He's there talking to the Congress. 
to the leaders of the nation. And he tells them that their flesh is going to be picked off their bones by the turkey vultures and by the scavengers. That's probably uh, not exactly what you want to speak to men in power if you want to get ahead in the society. Wow, he was courageous. He says, slaughter's going to come. The nation's going to be destroyed. And the vultures are going to feed on the flesh of the kings and the nobles right here in the valley of Hinnom. He says, and I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall drive them to despair. Jeremiah predicts that, it, that the Jews in Jerusalem will resort to cannibalism and eat their own sons and daughters. This was one of the inevitable horrors of siege warfare. You've got to understand that the breach of the walls when the army invaded, that this wasn't the beginning of the horrors. This was probably the end of many of the horrors. For in the ancient world, an invading army would surround a city and would literally starve it to death. The Romans, for example, would lay siege to a city for 15 years until all the supplies had been exhausted. In the latter stages of an invasion, a city's inhabitants often resorted to consuming their own waste and then ultimately to cannibalism. This was what awaited Jerusalem. This is what Jeremiah is warning them about. Soon the Babylonians will lay siege to their beloved city. Speaking of cannibalism, it reminds me, did you hear about the cannibal that ate something that didn't agree with him? It was his wife. Just, just a little joke there to lighten the mood. I actually read a true story of natives on a South Sea island who were visited by American GIs in World War II. These natives, when the soldiers got there, they proudly showed the soldiers their Bibles. The soldiers scoffed. They said, oh, well, we've outgrown that sort of thing. The natives responded, well, it's a good thing we haven't, or you would have been our meal by now. In verse 10, God gets to the visual as if the message needs to be more dramatic. He tells Jeremiah, Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, Even so I will break this people in this city, as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet till there is no place to bury. Thus I will do to this place, says the Lord, and to, inhabit, and to its inhabitants, and make this city like Tophet. Even at that time, the Valley of Hinnom was a place where folks would dump their broken pottery. You know, once a clay pot had been broken, it was worthless. It was nothing but scrap. Tophet was a mound in the valley. It means burning place. And God is about to turn all of Jerusalem into a burnt place. Remember, clay is moldable before it's put in the fire. But once it's fired, it becomes brittle and non-recyclable. And if it's ever broken, it's just thrown away. And Jeremiah is comparing Judah and Jerusalem to this broken flask. Their idolatry had made them unrecyclable. 
They were beyond repentance. They needed to be broken and humbled first. Then they could be turned from the error of their ways. One of the commentaries mentions an Egyptian practice where a man would take a piece of pottery and he would etch his enemy's name in the clay. He would then take the jar to a sacred place and he would dash it to pieces. And it was as if he was invoking a curse on his enemy. In a sense, this is what God is doing here with Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 13. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Tophet because of all the houses on whose roofs they have burnt incense to all the host of heaven and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Now in ancient Israel, the rooftops were like your back deck or like your patio. Matter of fact, not just in ancient Israel, but in modern Israel today. People spend a lot of time out on the roof. The Mediterranean climate makes the rooftop perfect for lounging and for entertaining guests. It was kind of the heart of the home. And here God is offended that the Jews had brought foreign gods, idols, into the very heart of their homes. That they had replaced Him with these idols. Then Jeremiah came from Tophet where the Lord had sent him to prophesy And he stood in the court of the Lord's house. And so he walks eastward from the valley of Hinnom. He goes up through the uh, potsherd gate. And he walks right onto the temple mount. It would have taken him maybe 15 minutes max. And said to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on this city and on all her towns all the doom that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their necks, that they might not hear my words. Now we believe in a God of mercy. We believe in a God of love. We believe in a God of blessing. But for all those things to be meaningful, we also have to believe in a God of righteousness and justice and holiness. Here, Jeremiah's message, it wasn't get your hopes up. It wasn't your best life now. He didn't come preaching the power of positive thinking. Jeremiah preached doom against the people who had stubbornly resisted God. This is a message that's needed today. We we need to trumpet God's standards of righteousness. And trust me, this didn't win Jeremiah many friends. His display in the valley had humiliated the priests and the leaders and the dignitaries. He hadn't just stepped on toes, buddy. He had stomped on their toes. And in chapter 20, the Jewish hierarchy is going to fight back. They're going to pull out all stops to shut up the prophet Jeremiah. Remember in chapter 11, Jeremiah's enemies, the priests from his hometown of Anathoth, had actually plotted an assassination attempt. It had failed, of course. In chapter 18, they tried to discredit him. They tried to slander and assassinate his character. Now in chapter 20, they ratch up their opposition further. They try to silence Jeremiah with intimidation and even torture. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now Pashur, the son of Emer, the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Now, the name Pashur will show up again in chapters 21 and in 38. 
But it's not the same guy. There's actually three Pashurs. Each of these Pashurs all have different fathers. Actually, the name Pashur could be a title rather than a proper name. You remember Caesar was the name of the first Roman emperor. But then it became a title for all of his successors. Pharaoh, too, was not a name, but it was the title of the ruler of Egypt. And likewise, Pashur could have been the title for the captain of the temple guard, the temple head usher, you might say. It was Pashur's job to keep order in the temple, to carry out the wishes of the priest, to keep the precincts tidy. You remember in John chapter 18, verse 3, the soldiers who arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they weren't the Roman troops as they're often depicted. No, they were a detachment of the temple guard. They were the ancestors of Pashur and those who hassled Jeremiah. We're told in verse 2, Then Pashur struck Jeremiah the prophet. He had him flogged and beaten. Deuteronomy 25 verse 3 gave specific instructions on how a public flogging was to be carried out. Forty blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. If the executioner exceeded 40 lashes, he himself was sentenced to the same punishment. And so it became customary to stop at 39, just a safety precaution. So, for being obedient to God, Jeremiah was hung over a post and beaten 39 times with a cat of nine tails. And they put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. Now, the gate of Benjamin was just north of the temple. It was on an elevated platform, and so it was the highest ground around. This was the site of the stocks. Or in the Hebrew, it's the word mapeketh. It means crooked or causing distortion. Usually, stocks were used for simple restraint. You'd put the criminal in the stocks just to kind of hold them there. But this device was more than that. It was used for torture. It somehow stretched the body out of joint and inflicted excruciating pain. These stocks were like putting Jeremiah on the rack. And remember, it was the religious leaders of the day who ordered his torture. Sometimes the fiercest opponents of a true move of God is the institutional church. Religion frequently persecutes true godliness. Here's an example. We're told in verse 3, And it happened on the next day that Pashur brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. The 24 hours of torture was intended to silence the prophet. Here's how much good it did. Then Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name Pashur, but Megor Misabib. The word means fear on every side. And again, it speaks of God's judgment that Judah will be surrounded by ferocious and fear-inducing armies on every side. In other words, they tried to shut up Jeremiah and he comes back preaching judgment again. He says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourselves and to all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword, 
Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of this city, all its produce, and all its precious things, all the treasures of the kings of Judah, I will give into the hand of their enemies, who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. Judah was the capital of Judah. It was its most secure and prosperous city, and yet it will be ravaged by the enemy. He says, And you, Pashur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. It's pretty obvious that his time on the rack had no effect on Jeremiah. Rather than shut him up, the persecution only emboldened him. You know, over our 240 years of history here in America, the Christian church has enjoyed amazing, an amazing degree of freedom and even respect. But realize around the world today, and even in the animals, annals of church history, this freedom, this respect is a rarity. More often than not, the church has been under attack. Prosperity is the anomaly, not the norm. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. For historically speaking, it's persecution that has intensified our determination. It's persecution that's purified our devotion. Whenever the church is persecuted, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. Far from quenching the flame, it only spreads. As the church father Augustine put it, the martyrs were bound, imprisoned, scourged, racked, burnt, torn, butchered, and they multiplied. Even in the face of persecution, Jeremiah, he stayed strong. He refused to wince or blink or back down. You remember God had told him at his calling, in chapter 1, verse 17, he had said, do not be dismayed before their faces. In other words, don't shrink in the sight of men, Jeremiah. Don't be intimidated. And Jeremiah obeyed. In chapter 16, God told the prophet to conceal his feelings, both his joy and his grief, lest he be misrepresented, or lest he misrepresent God before the people. Jeremiah was called by God to keep a poker face, to keep a stiff upper lip publicly. Jeremiah was instructed to play his cards close to his vest. And yet privately, Jeremiah let it all hang out. He was quick to express to God his disappointments and his frustrations. Jeremiah was strong before the people, but he melted in the presence of God. Peer into his prayer life and you'll find why he was called the weeping prophet. Above all else, Jeremiah was honest. I like to call him the honest prophet. He never minced words. He was brutally frank in his conversations with God. In fact, listen to him in verse 7. O Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I, and have prevailed. Lord, you forced me into this ministry. I didn't enlist, Lord. I was drafted. And I didn't sign up for this. I never wanted to be a prophet. God, you strong-armed me into this. He says, I am in derision daily, and everyone mocks me. Publicly, Jeremiah had been obedient. He kept a stiff upper lip, but privately, nobody likes to be mocked. 
Nobody likes to always be the brunt of the joke. Everybody likes to be liked. And it was this continual rejection. It wore Jeremiah down. He says, for when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted, violence and plunder. That was the message that God had given him to share. But because of the harsh message, the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. The Jews rejected God's message, but they took out their anger on the messenger. They threw mud at Jeremiah. And don't be surprised if this happens to you. The Christian gospel is good news. But the good news begins with the bad news. You've sinned. You need to repent. You need a Savior. And this is the part of the message that people don't always want to hear. Don't be surprised when they take out their, me- their resistance to the message on the messenger. This had been Jeremiah's experience. And in verse 9, he wants to resign. In fact, he turns in his letter of resignation. Listen to his complaint. I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. That's it. I'm done. Here's the keys to the church. Find somebody else for this Sunday. Jeremiah's tired of ministry, of being a prophet. He's weary of the abuse he's gotten from serving God. And yet God had warned him, hadn't he? God had told him to brace himself, that the road would not be easy, that he would be opposed by kings, by princes, by priests, even by the people. By the way, add that all up, and that's everybody. It's one thing to be warned, though, of a hardship. For you to give it a nod and an acknowledgement, it's an altogether different thing to go through the fire, personally. Jeremiah hadn't grasped the enormity of all that he had been called on to endure. He had sacrificed so much. We talked about this last week. He had given up family and friends, rank and riches, munchkins in marriage. I mean, he couldn't have a wife or little kids. In his mind, Jeremiah was doubting if any of this was worth it in order to serve the Lord. This prophet had very little to show for his efforts. Think about it. He served God for 40 years and he had no radio ministry. He had no mega church. No conference speaking opportunities. Jeremiah preached for four decades and didn't have a single convert. I suppose he was into stocks. But not the kind you buy and sell. Jeremiah felt like a prophet without profit. He truly had a non-profit status. Jeremiah felt that he and the ministry were a failure. You know, spiritual service is a tough task for a host of reasons. The demands, the persecution, the sacrifice. But for me, what makes ministry so difficult is the lack of tangible markers. Success in ministry is hard to measure. In business, there's a bottom line. Just look at the spreadsheets. Just figure out the numbers. But in ministry, numbers aren't necessarily a mark of success. Just ask Jeremiah. In fact, numbers can be deceptive. A big crowd, a big budget, big buildings. Big doesn't always indicate God's approval. The Mormons have a lot of people, and they're a cult. Jeremiah had nobody. Yet he was precious to God. 
This is why a pastor, anyone in Christian work, has to learn to keep their eyes on Jesus and God's calling for their life, not the tangible markers. Paul said, we walk by faith, not by sight. Well, Jeremiah wanted to retire. At the moment, his ministry seemed too much to bear. He turns in his resignation in verse 9. He says, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. And yet something happens. Keep reading. He says, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. Jeremiah threatened to quit. He tried to quit, but he just couldn't quit. After turning in his resignation, Jeremiah went home that night and he couldn't sleep. So what did he do? He opened up his scroll, his Bible, and he started to read. And God's word caused him a divine, a case of divine heartburn. The Bible burned in his bones, he said. The Word of God stirred him. You know, D.L. Moody once said, I know the Bible is inspired because it inspires me. The Scriptures lit a fire in Jeremiah. God's love, His promises, even His judgments warmed Jeremiah. They brought his passion to such a boil that he just had to speak the truths that God had spoken. He tried to resign from speaking, but after reading God's Word, he couldn't stay silent. <laughs> Pashur tried to button his lips, but God's word kept loosening them. And this is the mark of a true man of God. He doesn't just turn it on and off. He's not just a pastor because it's his job. He's driven by this. He's propelled by God's spirit and his love for God's word. Ministry is not just a trade or profession. It is his passion. I love Paul's letters. Three times in Paul's letters, he, he says he was made a minister. It wasn't just an occupation. God put it in his heart. God worked it into his life. You see, before a man enters the ministry, the ministry needs to enter the man. Once there was a farmer, he wrote to the church headquarters asking for a pastor to come to his town and start a church. The superintendent wrote him back and he asked him, he said, how big of a man do you want? The farmer replied, well, we're not picky, but when he's on his knees, we would like to have him reach heaven. Jeremiah was a man of God who reached heaven. He says in verse 10, For I heard many mocking, fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, Perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. Notice the irony here. It, it, it was the scorn and the opposition that Jeremiah had experienced. This is what caused his initial discouragement. This is what made him want to quit. But now it's the same scorn and opposition that's motivating him to continue on. He says, if I quit, it's going to prove the skeptics right. I'm going to play right into my enemy's hands. It's ironic, but the same reasons that made him think about quitting became the same reasons for him carrying on. You know, I can remember the first time I went through the book of Jeremiah. And I got to this passage. 
And I'll tell you, it was a, it was a rough time in my ministry. I, I, too, wanted to quit. And I can remember praying, Lord, folks are so hard-hearted. They're stuck in tradition. They just don't want to be taught your word. And then I would read the scriptures. And God would light a fire all over again in my heart. And I'd start praying, Lord, people need to be taught your word. There needs to be a church that teaches the scripture. Lord, please send somebody to start a Calvary Chapel type church in this community, please. And lo and behold, I had signed back up for the same job I wanted to quit. I can't tell you how many times I prayed in a full circle. You see, often the reasons a pastor wants to toss in the towel are the very reasons that he needs to stick with it. We need to view people's problems as God's opportunities. Verse 11 tells us, But the Lord is with me, he says, as a mighty awesome one. Therefore my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, Let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my cause before you. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of evildoers. Cursed be the day in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Now remember, reading these chapters are like reading Jeremiah's journal. We're peeking into a diary here. And in doing so, we get a glimpse at the prophet's feelings. And they're all over the board. You notice that. Look at the severity of his mood swing here. In just one chapter, in just a few verses. In verse 9, he's depressed and ready to quit. In verse 11, he rises up in faith and he prays for victory, vindication. In verse 13, he sings praises to God. And then in verse 13, and then he turns right back around and he curses the day he was born. Talk about an emotional roller coaster. Did you know that when you pray, you just need to just get it all out there? Did you know you can do that with God? That you don't have to make a lot of sense when you pray. You can just express your heart. You can just get it all out there. You can just tell him how you're feeling. You can be raw. You can be real. God just wants you to take what's inside and express it to him in trust and in faith. Talk about an emotional roller coaster, but we've all been there, haven't we? There have been times when there's been a storm, an emotional upheaval, brewing in your heart, brewing inside of you. And this is why we need to learn quickly in the Christian life to never trust our emotions. Our feelings are fickle. They're fleeting. Our faith is not based on emotion. It's based on truth. Here Jeremiah lets his emotions get the best of him. In his book, Pain's Hidden Purpose, Don Baker, he makes an interesting point about tough times. He writes this, Pain speaks a strange language. He play, it plays funny tricks on us. It makes us think things and say things and even believe things that are not true. Pain contorts our perspective. It twists our reality. It stretches our trials out of proportion. When the pain subsides finally and God brings relief, we see life more clearly. But in the moment of pain, boy, our perspective can get obscured. I don't believe Jeremiah meant most of what he's about to say in this passage. 
I'm sure that later on he regretted a lot of what he said and felt, but he was honest. And to that is his credit. He was honest to God. He didn't bottle up his feelings. God doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to be raw, to be real, to pray from your heart. And so he writes in verse 15. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father, saying, A male child has been born to you, making him very glad. Now, now you kind of you get a clue that the man's depressed. He, you know, he wants... <laughs> He says, and let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon, because he did not kill me from the womb, that my mother might have been my grave and her womb always enlarged with me. Why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow, that my day should be consumed with shame? That's rough. He's having a rough day. Realize this isn't God speaking. This isn't even a man speaking from God's perspective on be, or on behalf of God. This is just the babble and the prattle of a man's pain. I'm glad nobody wrote down my prayers, some of the prayers I've prayed. Especially when I've been hurting, going through a tough time. You remember Jeremiah opened his prophecy in chapter 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. But now the wear and tear of ministry and the pain of rejection has caused him to curse the day of his birth. The prophet wishes that he died in his mother's womb. Having a rough time. Chapter 21. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Masiah, the priest, saying, This is another Pashur. He has a different dad than did the Pashur in chapter 20. This Pashur is an emissary or a messenger of King Zedekiah. And here's the king's request of the prophet Jeremiah. He says, Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works, that the king may go away from us. Now it's helpful to note that the book of Jeremiah is not in strict chronological order. It's actually a collection of excerpts from his life. There's a structure to it, but it's not sequential. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah before they fell to Babylon. By the time that he took the throne, the Babylonians had already invaded Judah twice. The first invasion was in 605 B.C. during the reign of a man named King Jehoiakim, a son of Josiah. Jehoiakim was a wicked king. He brought in a lot of this idolatry. He reigned for 11 years. A second invasion in 597 B.C. occurred during the reign of Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, who had taken the throne. Babylon stripped the throne from this king Jehoiakim, or Coniah as he's often mentioned, and they deported him to Babylon and they placed his uncle, another son of Josiah, Zedekiah, on the throne. The Jews of Judah never accepted this Zedekiah as a legitimate king, but he was the last one to sit on the throne before Jerusalem fell. And thus... 
if Zedekiah is on the throne here in chapter 21, it means that the end is near. The, the fall of Babylon is, is about to take place. I, I mean, the fall of Jerusalem is about to happen. We're in the final days before the walls are breached and before the Babylonians flood into the city. Now think about this from Zedekiah's standpoint. He's the last king. He's looking over the walls. There's this ferocious army out there. He needs a way out. And so, as a last-ditch resort, he sends a messenger to the prophet Jeremiah and says, would you pray for us? Now, it had been nice had he done that, somebody had done that 50 years earlier. But now when your back's against the wall, you're at the end of the rope, now you're going to call out to God. That's, that's what he does. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls. And I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm. Even in anger and fury and great wrath, I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Zedekiah had asked for God's deliverance. Instead, God tells the king that he'll be fighting with the enemy. Sorry. Because of their sin, God will be against his own people in this battle. They need to learn a lesson. Don't just think that when you're finally exhausted your fun and had your thrills and you're finally out there, that you can turn to God and He'll be there. Perhaps He will. He's a merciful God. He's like that sometimes. But, but there are times when God has to let you suffer the consequences of what you've sowed. There are times when God lets you hit rock bottom. God may or may not be there to catch you when you feel like He needs to or you want Him to. This is why you need to walk with Him daily. King Zedekiah wanted to know if God was on his side. He should have been asking, was he on God's side? Verse 7, And afterwards, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people, and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their life, and he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. Now he does give them some hope. He says, now you shall say to this people, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life. In the way of death. He who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live. And his life shall be as a prize to him. For I have set my face against this city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. Wow! What a response to King Zedekiah. 
Zedekiah sought for God's intervention, but Jeremiah says, hey boy, it's too little too late. Sorry. The nation's judgment has been sealed. God has decided which side he'll fight on, and that'll be the Babylonians. Jerusalem will be sacked and burned. The only way for the Jews to save their lives is to surrender, to defect to the enemy. If this was a difficult message for Zedekiah and the Jews to stomach, imagine how difficult a message this was for Jeremiah to deliver. Jeremiah was a Jewish patriot. He loved his nation. He loved the people. For a time, earlier in his ministry, he had preached, turn to God, and God will deliver you. But now their only hope is to surrender. God is now fighting with the Babylonians. Think of this. Obedience to God was now to commit national treason. That's what obedience to God required. Committing national treason. Here's a lesson for us. Even though we love our country, when it becomes apparent that God is on the other side, you need to follow God. Allegiance to God trumps loyalty to country. How this principle might apply in the future to Christians in America is something that we all really need to ponder. Verse 11. And concerning the house of the king of Judah say, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment in the morning and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Jeremiah is calling on King Zedekiah to issue a formal declaration of surrender to the Babylonians. He says this is the only way to be spared God's fury. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord, who say, Who shall come down against us, or who shall enter our dwellings? But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest, and it shall devour all things around it. And needless to say, this message didn't provide Jeremiah a bump in the polls. It is going to incite even more persecution. Next week, we'll take a look at Jeremiah chapters 22 and 23.